Well, good morning and welcome to Calvary Church. Welcome to all of you joining us from Calvary in Quakertown. It's good to have you with us. Welcome to those of you joining us from Heritage Hall. We're in a series that we're calling Make Way, in which we're looking at some of the kings from the Old Testament, and we're looking at how they point to, either through some glimpses of perfection or some failures that need a remedy, how they in some way point to Jesus, the ultimate king, the king of kings. But before we get to our king today, I need to talk a little bit about Christmas. Not my wish list, I'll give you that later, but talk about our Christmas services. We're planning five Christmas services, although they'll all be the same. We're going to have the first of our Christmas services on the 20th, that's on Sunday morning. Then we'll have two of them on the 23rd and two on the 24th. But we have to do it a little differently this year because we want everybody to feel safe and to be safe. And so we're going to ask you to go online, either through the app or the website, go to the services, and let us know which of the services you're planning on attending. Kind of like RSVP, right? If you're going to accept an invitation to a wedding, well, this is your invitation to a Christmas service. And so you're going to have to RSVP. Please, when you go on, it's going to ask you the number of people that are in your party. Everyone in your party doesn't have to go on and sign up. One person goes on, but list the number of people and the service you would like to attend. Now, the reason we have five services, not more, if you go on and there are no spaces left, just go on the waiting list because we will then add services as needed. So we're thinking maybe we'll get away with five. If not, please go on, go on the waiting list and we'll open up other spaces. But we've got to kind of work together, cooperate through the process just so everybody feels safe and everybody is safe for our Christmas season. So we're giving you a long heads up. You can go on and start doing that and we'll keep you updated as to when the services are going to be and if we need to add any. Well, so far in our Make Way series, we've looked at two kings. We've looked at Saul and we've looked at David. And I'm not not sure if both weeks you noticed, there were kind of glimpses of hope, right? I mean, even with Saul, he kind of starts out well. Even David starts out great. But then ultimately they end in great disappointment and in failure. And we're left kind of shaking our heads saying, well, we need a better king than this. Well, maybe we're going to have a better shot today. Today we come to Solomon. Now, my guess is some of you know the name Solomon because he actually wrote a whole bunch of the Old Testament. Most people believe, and probably, he wrote most of Proverbs. He's a really, really smart guy, a wise guy. He probably wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Song of Solomon. A little bit of an ego, names the book after himself. So anyway, Solomon, and my guess is you've benefited from those particular books. I try to work through those books at least once a year. Very beneficial to think how we Don't just take in information, but we go beyond information to move to wisdom. Well, anyway, we're going to look a little bit at Solomon today and see what we can learn about him, how we can kind of orient our lives in the direction he pointed, but I'm afraid we're going to kind of end up the same place we ended up with Saul and David up, but we'll get there in a few minutes. First of all, let me tell you that Solomon had an imperfect beginning. An imperfect beginning. But that's not completely bad news. Uh, let, let, me, let me give you a couple of heads up in case you don't know this. In a race, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. In a marriage, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. In life, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Therefore, 
we would all be wise to contemplate and think about where we want to wind up and then organize life to wind up there. Live life with the end in view. Live life kind of backwards to the point of where you want to wind up. Solomon had an imperfect start, just like many of you. Uh, Let me see if some of you need this point. How many of you grew up in a perfect family? Raise your hand. A perfect, oh, we got one. Okay, good. Um, How many of you grew up in an imperfect family? Yeah, okay, put your hands down. Um, uh, You don't have to raise your hands anymore. How many of you grew up in a really messed up, screwed up, terrible family? Okay, now here's, here's what I want you to do. You're going to have to work for the next couple of minutes. I want you to take some of those thoughts about your imperfect family and compare them to Solomon's, as I mentioned, just a couple of things about his family. All right? And you're going to compare and contrast because it's in a race, it's not how you begin, it's how you end. Well, you may have not had a great beginning. That's no excuse for how you're going to end up. Check this out. Solomon's older brother raped his sister. That older brother's name was Amnon. He rapes his sister. Solomon's other brother, Absalom, kills Amnon. David's general kills Absalom. Adonijah, another older brother, he tries to gather forces and commit a coup to kick David off of the throne. David's still alive. Adonijah tries to take the throne. Oh, yeah. Solomon himself is the product of David and Bathsheba. David should not have been with her. David should not have touched her. Oh, yeah. And not just was Solomon conceived in an adulterous relationship, David murders or has murdered Bathsheba's husband in an attempt to cover it up. Now, don't raise your hand. How are you feeling about your family now? Yeah, my guess is regardless of how messed up your family was, I don't think your older brother raped your older sister, was killed by another older brother. Another older brother tried to dethrone your dad and take him out. Then the general um, kind of kills that brother. And at the end of the day, remember Adonijah who tried to take the throne? One of the first things Solomon does upon becoming king, he kills his brother Adonijah. I'd say that's an imperfect beginning, don't you think? I mean, that's not starting out on the top of the heap. That's kind of starting out at the bottom of the barrel. But remember, in a race, it's not how you start. It's how you end. In life, it's not how you start. It's how you end. Live with the end in view. Now, Solomon's life kind of falls into two parts. There's a first part, which is a good part. That, that's kind of the, the rise. Uh, we'll get to the second part, which isn't nearly as good in a few minutes. But yeah, David has this, or Solomon has this rise. David, son Solomon, ascends to the throne. David dies. And Solomon's first thing he does upon becoming king, he really starts out well once he becomes king. He goes to worship. He goes to worship. And while he's worshiping, God appears to him in a vision. And here's what God says. Solomon, look at the last line. Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Now, that's God asking the question. It's not like somebody who can't deliver. 
You know, one of your friends may say, oh yeah, I'll bet you a million dollars. Yeah, right, he's not betting you a million dollars. And God says, Solomon, ask whatever you want me to give you. Whatever you want me to give you. Well, before we look at what Solomon asked for, let's just kind of put a pause there. Suppose God asked you that question. What would you ask for? Now, you don't have to yell it out. You'll be embarrassed, I know. But just think it in. But, but you know, don't lie. You're in church or you're watching online, right? You're still kind of in church. Yeah, kind of be truthful with yourself. If God, God were to say to you, ask for whatever you want me to give you, what would you ask for? Well, the number one American answer is money. You want money and lots of it. Or maybe you'd say a, a job or a new job. Or maybe you'd say a family. You know, I want a spouse. I want kids. Or I want a new spouse. I want different kids. Or maybe you'd ask for a car. Yeah, I was thinking about a car. Uh, let me just say, if God asks you what you want and you ask for a car, you're stupid, right? I mean, ask for a dumb car. At least ask for something more important than that. Maybe some of you are struggling with you know, physical illness and incurable something. You ask God, ask me whatever you want me to give you. Would you ask for health? Would you ask for healing? Would you ask for relationships? Would you ask for stuff? What would you ask for? If God himself said, ask for, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. What would you ask for? How you answer that question tells you a whole lot about what your priorities are, how you answer that question tells you a whole lot about what you're living for. And yeah, however you answer that question tells you a whole lot about the end of your life that you're seeking to accomplish as you're living life, right? What do you think Solomon asked for? Remember, he starts really well. Here's what he says. Now, think about that. God, ask for whatever you want. Here's what Solomon says. Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Isn't that amazing? Solomon doesn't ask for money. He doesn't ask for victories in war. He doesn't ask for honor. He doesn't, he says, God, I need wisdom. I need um, understanding. I need discernment. I don't have what it takes to lead this people of yours. And so, what I really ask for, Lord, is not stuff that I can accumulate and spend on myself or my own comfort. I ask you to give me wisdom and discernment so I can be a great leader of your people. Wow. What do you think God thought of his answer? Well, I'll read it to you just to show you. This is in 1 Kings 3 in the next verse, beginning in verse 10. Here's what God thinks of Solomon's answer. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will give you what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for. I will give you wealth and honor so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. I'd say God liked the answer. 
In fact, God says, I'm going to make you wise. I'm going to give you discernment so that you can govern my people well. And I'm going to give you all the stuff you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to extend the borders of your land. I'm going to give you what you asked for. And everything that most people would ask for and you didn't ask for, I'm giving you all that stuff too. Well, as you read now from, from the end of 1 Kings 3 through like 1 Kings chapter 10, we just have example after example after example of God's answer of Solomon's request. And so right at the end of the chapter, and here's the first example that God answered Solomon's request. He has this very perplexing, difficult court case. Remember back then, the king was kind of judge. He was not only king kind of in charge of the executive branch, he was also the judicial branch. And all of a sudden, his case comes into the courtroom, picture Judge Judy, here come the two, and Two prostitutes come into the court. Two prostitutes. Yeah, we should probably stop right there. You know, in the ancient world, prostitutes were at the bottom of the ladder. They were kind of like scum of the earth. No young girl chooses and has her desire set on being a prostitute. But in a culture where you can't make any money, and you're kind of destitute, if nobody wants you, you're thrown on the sidelines. Prostitution may be the only thing left for you to do if you want to survive. In most courtrooms, prostitutes would never be, in, be allowed to even enter. But notice, Solomon is so caring, he even lets these two prostitutes come before him. But they've got this very difficult case. Two prostitutes, one baby. They both had a baby, but one doesn't have a baby anymore. In kind of a terrible situation, both of the prostitutes have a kid, and the one mother, eh, probably falling asleep, rolls over, suffocates her kid. Well, rather than live without a kid, maybe she hopes the son or whatever's going to grow up and he'll be able to take care of her. You know, the apple of her eye, all the things she said her dreams on. You know, prostitutes may be at the bottom of the bar, but they still are loving mothers. And so she doesn't know what to do. Anyway, she takes her dead son, sneaks into the other prostitute's room, takes the live baby, replaces the live baby with her dead baby, and goes back to her room. Next day, the prostitute wakes up and says, this isn't my baby. Like This doesn't look anything like my baby. You took my baby. They come to the courtroom. Solomon's got a different, hey, he's got two prostitutes, one baby. How's he going to decide? He doesn't know. But he says, I got an idea. Bring me a sword. Look, I can't figure out whose is whose. I'll cut the baby in half and you'll each get half. How's that work? Well, as you might guess, the mother whose son it really is, doesn't want her son killed. She says, let the other woman have the baby. Solomon says, that's the real mother. Give her the baby. And the other mother goes home without a son. Notice discernment, wisdom in a very thorny, difficult situation. God's answer to Solomon's request right at the end of the chapter. Well, as you read the other chapters that follow up after that, you see enormous accumulation Solomon extends the borders of the kingdom. He accumulates great wealth. In fact, in one uh, little episode there, he, um, he works with some sailors. He has a fleet of ships. 
And he sends them out to collect stuff. And they go out three years at a time. And they fill the ships with gold and silver and ivory. And here's the best part. And with apes and baboons. I, I like that, right? I would, you need some baboons around the palace, right? So every third year, the ships return, and they come back with so much gold, the ships are barely able to float as they get into port, and they unload the gold, they unload the silver, they unload the ivory, and all the apes and baboons go down to Jerusalem. All those are examples of Solomon's wisdom and his acclaim. People are coming from all over the world to hear what he says. It's part of this time he's writing some Proverbs. He's maybe writing Ecclesiastes. Solomon is wise and discerning. Oh, not just that. He's like a, you know, he's a, an engineer, a designer, and a general contractor like you wouldn't believe. He builds the temple. He's got like a hundred and some thousand people working on the temple. It takes him seven years to build the temple. Opulence, extravagance, beyond your imagination. Oh, yeah. It takes him double that to build his palace, right? Seven years to build the temple, 13 years to build his house. Um, yeah, my guess is that was pretty extravagant too. Accumulation, all of this stuff. Solomon is on the rise. And all the while, he's wise, he's wise, he's wise. All of those examples of God answering his prayer. So as I started, in the first 10 or 11 chapters of 1 Kings, we find the word for wisdom used over 21 times. Solomon is wise. Solomon is, is discerning. Solomon's able to sort out all these things. His acclaim, his, his prestige is growing throughout the world. Solomon is at the top of the ladder. I wish I could end here. Some of you think, hey, that would be a good time then, Charles. We'll get out early. Yeah, but I can't. Could you see there's a part two to Solomon's life? And part two is not nearly as good as... a. Uh, Part one. You see, part two is the fall. And you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. How in the world can somebody with all this wisdom, all of his desires, living with creature comforts that we can't imagine, how in the world can he have a fall? Yeah, it's pretty sobering, isn't it? In fact, maybe the punchline of Solomon's life is not that even wise people can fall? That's not the punchline. Here's the punchline. Wise people at the height of experiencing the consequences of their wisdom are prone to fall. How does the cycle go? It starts with humility, and then God gives grace and wisdom and discernment, and that wisdom and discernment are applied, and you begin to accumulate, you get honor, and the consequences of that wisdom begin to build your ego, and your ego causes you to go off track, and before you know it, God's no longer the center. You know, I'm reminded of a, a place that, that Moses wrote. Um, I think it's in Deuteronomy. Here's what he says. Now, be really careful when you get in the promised land, be really careful. You'd think he would say, when the enemies are attacking and you have nothing to eat and the lean years are upon you, be careful that you don't forget God. That's not what he says. In fact, he says, when the lean years come, you'll know where to look. When the lean years come and you're living through difficulty, you'll focus on God. Be careful when the harvests are bigger than you can imagine. Be careful when the wine vats are at the fullest. 
Be careful when all of your enemies have been defeated. Be careful when you're living at peace. Be careful when you seemingly have life the way you want it. Be careful then that you don't forget God. That's the lesson. And that's sobering to me, and maybe it should be to all of us. Because let's face it, we um, live with a whole lot of stuff. A lot of you are really wise. You've climbed a ladder to a certain degree. You're experiencing the consequences of God's grace and wisdom and discipline. You're experiencing all. Be careful. Sometimes it's at the height of experiencing all that stuff that the failure and the fall comes. But I want to show you. There's actually a little seed early on that gets planted and brings a harvest later. So here's the seed, all the way back in chapter 3. Now, in 1 Kings 3, that's where David prayed that real humble prayer, right? Lord, I I don't ask for all this stuff for myself. I ask for discernment and wisdom to lead your people. But look at this verse um, in verse 8, or verse 3. Solomon showed his love for the, look at that, Solomon's loving God. You know, we gather together like this. It's pretty easy to say, oh, yes, I love God. I love his grace. I love the fact that I can be forgiven and find acceptance through what Jesus did. Solomon's love is focused on the Lord. And he's walking according to his instructions given him by his father, David. But look at the next word, except. Hmm. If you have an except anywhere near the loving God thing, that's a seed that is going to bear a harvest. If you're, excuse me, if you're married, suppose you say to your spouse, honey, I just want you to know I really love you. And I'll be faithful to you for it, except it doesn't matter what comes after the except, you're in trouble, right? Um, So maybe we should pause here and say, Solomon had an except, right? Except he loved the Lord, except he was worshiping other gods as well. He's burning incense to other false gods. Solomon loved God, except what except do you have in your life? Maybe you have more than one. In fact, I was tempted, but we're not allowed to hand anything out, I guess. I was tempted, little cards printed that said, accept on it. Give you all one. Put it in your pocket. Every time you put, accept. What is your accept? Yeah, I love the Lord. I want to be first in my life. I want to live for Jesus. And I want to impact um, people. I want to connect with people and connect and be impacted by God. Except, except you're going to pursue as much as you can for yourself. Except your heart's set on this. Whatever comes after your accept is kind of like a seed. And make no mistake, that seed gets planted and it germinates in, the, in our culture. And pretty soon the roots are growing out and you may not see the consequences of that accept seed for a long time. But make no mistake, underneath the soil, that little accept seed is germinating. And one day or someday soon, it's going to break through the soil. And if you're not careful, that accept seed is going to produce a harvest of however. Look at verse 11 or chapter 11. King Solomon, however, here's the point. If you don't rip your accept seed out of the soil, it will produce a harvest of however. Remember what it said in 1 Kings 3? Solomon loved the Lord. If you were to ask, hey, I'm committed to God. I want to follow him just like David did. I want to commit myself to him. Except, but the, except, look by the time you get to chapter 11, 
King Solomon, however, now he doesn't love the Lord anymore. Now he loved many foreign women. Don't blame the foreign women. Can I let, let you in on a little bit of like how the accept girl harvest? You know how many wives Solomon had? 700. Imagine buying Christmas gifts. 700, right? And 300 concubines, whatever they are, right? A thousand women. Um, you know, I was reading that, thinking about that. I, was, I am so glad I was not Solomon's pastor. I'd be like in permanent wedding duty. I mean, a thousand weddings. You, you have like a wedding. Solomon is like a permanent groom. He just goes from one tux to the next. Uh, 700 wives, 300 concubines. But notice, it's not the women. It's not like, you know, Solomon is some, you know, lustful guys living outside the harem, a harem. No, no, no. Wives were political alliances. A king would marry a foreign woman, kind of like a treaty. So rather than the United States signing a treaty with Germany or China, right, or anybody, you know, the president or the king would marry a daughter from the other country. That's how treaties got written. And so treaties were built by, so Solomon, it's not just that he's loving all these women, he's building alliances with foreign countries and foreign leaders. And so rather than standing alone in his faith, faith on God, he now is living these lives, his accept became a however, and yours will too. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, how in the world did that happen? Well, let me show you. You see, there are two paths, and I'll try to make it as simple as possible, two paths. The one path is you're loving God and you're following, right? You're living a life of connection and impact by God and for God, but then there's also this other path, and Paul calls it the path of deceitful desires. Deceit. You ever, want, you ever notice in your life, you have a whole bunch of deceitful desires. Uh, these desires may not be bad. You know, you, you and I desire, desires are good, right? You desire safety, you desire food, you, you desire things that keep you alive and keep you safe. But those desires can be deceitful, especially if they become like your main priority. Uh, so for example... I have two grandsons. Their favorite food is donuts. You want string beans? Ah, no. You want soup? No. You want meat? No. I want a donut, right? Now, here's the funny thing with the donut. Very deceitful, right? So think of your little kids, think of your grandkids, or think of your husband. Kind of works the same way. And donuts, right? Um, you think to yourself, I'm sure in my little grandson's mind, here's what they're thinking. Huh. If I just had that glazed donuts from Dunkin', if I had one, I would never want anything else the rest of my life. Give me that glazed donut and I'm good forever. Yeah, but it doesn't work that way, right? Now, does it do any good to try to reason with this little guy? Wait a minute. Sugar and lard are not two main food groups, right? You don't get well on that. You need vitamins, you need protein, you need some... No. They don't pay attention to any of that, right? You see, it's deceitful desire. Now, look, maybe it's not donuts for you. I'm guessing it's something. But those desires are deceitful, right? 
Oh, let, let me show you, to show you how idiotic this is. Now, I need your help with this, all right? This is maybe the most famous song from a commercial in the world. I need your help there. Ready? Oh, I wish I were an Oscar. Come on. Meyer Wiener. That is what I truly want to be. For if I were an Oscar Meyer Wiener, everyone would be in love with me. Any deceitful desire in that song, you think? Now, now think about it, right? Would everybody really be in love with you if you were a hot dog? <laughs> they wouldn't love you. They would slice you longitudinally. They put you on a grill or in a pot of boiling water. They then smear mustard on you and they would devour you. That's a deceitful desire, right? Oh yeah, but we're not talking donuts and we're not talking hot dogs. There are other deceitful desires you have in your life too, don't you? Whatever they are. Think, you, there are two paths here. The one path is to follow God be impacted and connect with him as you impact and connect with others. Or the other is this path of deceitful desires, those little accepts in your life that you get planted. And the more you practice, the more you run after the accept, the more deeply lodged that little accept gets. And remember, a harvest is coming. Solomon loved God in 1 Kings 3. He loved a thousand women in 1 Kings 11. Always works that way. Desires are deceitful. Well, by the time you come to the end of Solomon's life, just like Saul and just like David, you say, uh, boy, we need a better king. He was really wise. Read his books. Read Proverbs. Read Ecclesiastes. They're great, right? Read them. Learn from them. But we need a better king. The good news is we've got one. Let me show you. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. Jesus is speaking. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. Right? You can read about that. You can't read about that. And now, something greater than Solomon is here. We need a better king? We've got one. This king didn't live by deceitful desires. He put the desire of God above all else. And in his mission, he accomplished what we couldn't for ourselves. And as we follow him, we get forgiveness and acceptance, and we get a purpose for living. He came, he died for us. He rose from the dead to prove God was satisfied. Oh, yeah. And he promises to come back. And when he does... All his followers will experience fulfillment forever. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for these characters that point to you more than they point to themselves. These characters that show us in their flaws that we need a better king. Show us in little glimpses of hope, aspects of Jesus that we need to live out. And Lord, I pray that as we look at these kings, may our attention not be drawn primarily to them, but may they be drawn to the one to whom they point. And may we say, we need a better king. And may we remind ourselves this Christmas and every day, we've got one. His name's Jesus.